What is information? It's one of those questions where you struggle to give a good definition. You mostly spend time coming up with different synonyms. Information is knowledge. It's data. You might think of technology and say it's bits and bytes and ones and zeros, but you know that that's not the only representation of information. Questions like that, questions where you struggle to give a good answer, in my experience, fall into one of two categories. First one is the question itself is sort of wrong. It's meaningless to ask that question, without context at least. It's like asking what is everything. Well, everything is everything. The word itself is used to describe bad words. It's one of those low-level words that you just have to somehow accept. You know what it is, it's just hard to explain. And the other category is profound questions, questions that aren't only difficult because they are difficult, but they also open a door to a completely new and separate, but somehow connected, vast topic of knowledge, something fundamental to reality. And what is information is, I believe, of the second type. It's difficult to answer because we don't have a good intuition for this, even though we are just used to information all around us. It's not something we just feel like the word everything. And it does open a door to a vast topic of knowledge, something fundamental, maybe even as fundamental as elementary particles or time itself. We'll explore these questions and ideas in today's episode of Code Expanse. My name is Rakim. Welcome and let's go. So you're playing Family Feud and you get this question, is information important? I would say yes. Even though I think the question is meaningless, I would say most of the people today at least will say yes, information is important. Of course, what kind of information? Some information is useful, some is not, and most of the people will also agree to that. We have this understanding that information can be useless, but still be information, still take up some sort of space or memory. After all, we are told we live in the information age, this age of humanity where information is the most important thing. And we know how information can be really valuable. One can travel with the contents of their own brain, which will cost more than any piece of gold. People's knowledge and skills and even memory could be really valuable, at least in today's economy. But we also know that information represents classic valuables too, things that before had only physical representation. In the banking systems, most of the money today isn't represented by any sort of cash or gold. It's all numbers in computers, so it's just information. And many other valuables are like that too. Contracts, debts, records. So we automatically think of computers when we hear the word information. For us, it's sort of an obvious connection. Computers are about information, that's why we have them. And it's also kind of obvious for us that we can put any sort of information into the computer, and it always can be represented by those ones and zeros. If it's a video or text or a picture or a book or a movie, it all comes down to ones and zeros. But this idea isn't obvious at all. There are different types of information, but they are fundamentally the same format. They can be stored as just this simple combination of just two digits. And one of the people who first explored this idea was Claude Shannon in his paper A Mathematical Theory of Communication, published in 1948. He is the father of what we call information theory, one of the less known fields of computer science for the general public and one of the less known people 
in the history of computer science and technology. But Claude Shannon single-handedly created a new field that now lays as the foundation of modern computing. It's the idea of information being countable, information being representable by a single universal format, and the idea of having different amounts of information in different messages, and what abilities that give us. So we're in the middle of 20th century. Most of the information is sent through analog signals. We still send a lot of paper mail. That's how we communicate long distances if time is not an issue. But there are also phones, telegraphs, and most of messages there go through wires. And the problem with wires is they aren't perfect conductors of electrical signal. Noise is added, and the longer the wire, the worse the noise. If you want to cover a big country like United States, if you want to send a message on the wire from East Coast to West Coast, if you just have this long wire on the other side, you won't get any signal. It will be all noise. The wire is too damn long. To solve this, they used to put amplifiers every few miles or hundreds of miles. An amplifier is just what it says. It takes the signal, makes it stronger, and passes it along. The problem there is it is indiscriminate. It just amplifies whatever it gets. Of course, it gets some noise too, so noise gets amplified as well. This means every amplification, you are actually losing some information. If you want to cover somewhat large distances, that might work, so you might still get a decipherable message. But if you want to go longer, you might face a problem where even with amplifiers, you just get junk at the end. At the time, common thinking wasn't about the essence of information. People were trying to solve this problem, engineers and scientists, and they were mostly thinking about this setting itself. The signal, the noise, the physics of it, trying to improve the noise-to-signal ratio and thinking in terms of physical limitations of these systems. But Shannon wanted to think about the essence of information, just as a mathematician would do, think about the pure concept without physical world. What are you trying to do? You're trying to send some knowledge, some idea, some piece of information, which isn't fundamentally connected to wires or amplifiers or any sort of device. People also didn't think too much about different ways to encode information. Of course, there were ways of encoding. There was, there was this growing field of cryptography. But for the most part, different ways of communication were almost considered different types of information. They weren't considered fundamentally the same. A human conversation in real time and a book and the phone call. They have nothing in common. They're different types of information. But if you look at the essence, as Shannon did, and you just think about what knowledge is being transferred, then it doesn't matter what format it's being transferred in. So first, Shannon thinks about, well, maybe there could be a universal code, some sort of encoding that is able to encompass any type of communication. And he suggests that such code exists. And today, we have different levels of encoding. Well, we have those ones and zeros, of course, but on a higher level, we have things for text, for example. Unicode is an example of encoding of different characters and symbols and even emojis into numbers. And as long as all computers agree that this is the table, this, this is the connection between numbers and symbols, then we can send numbers and computers interpret those numbers and get the same text on the screen on the other side. There is also a natural example of encoding of information, and that's DNA. That's how information about our bodies and to some degree about our behavior is stored in every single cell of our body. It's also universal to an extent. It's a single format. 
those four letters, four types of molecules, but they encode different things. Not only they describe different parts of our bodies, they describe different properties of those parts, properties that on the first glance don't have anything in common. They might describe our height and our ability to endure pain. Those are really different communications, right? Different types of facts. Nevertheless, they are being stored in the same format. And by the way, DNA has this problem of noise as well, because DNA has to be copied all the time. It's being copied right now in your body, millions and millions of times. Every time your cell divides, it needs to make a copy of DNA. And that copying isn't perfect. This isn't a digital machine. It's a mechanical, chemical process. So it's just a long molecule, and some other molecules are processing that molecule and making it, making a copy of it. And that sometimes leads to mistakes. And you don't want mistakes in your DNA, unless you are in old style comic book. So there are ways in the cell and in DNA itself to correct simple errors. This way we don't die horrible deaths every time our cells divide. It seems like nature already deals with a problem that we faced in the 20th century and we can learn something from nature as well. Okay, well, maybe we can have this universal code and any type of communication can be encoded like that. Great. We still have this problem of noise. How do we pass this message encoded in this universal code to the other side of the continent? Well, again, if you think about the essence of information instead of things like signals and noise, then you might come up with the idea of Amplifiers not just amplifying whatever they get, but first interpreting what they get and getting to the essence of information first, the message itself, and then amplifying that. An example of that would be, let's say we came up with an encoding of different frequencies that map to different letters in the English alphabet. We have number one, that's some frequency, some jiggling in this signal, and that number would represent some letter that we want to transfer. And we just came up with different numbers for different letters, and all those numbers are integers, whole numbers, one, two, three, etc. The signal is analog, and that's just a, just a vibration of the electromagnetic field, and that could correspond to any number, not just integers, but any fractional number. This means if I send number one and there's some noise on the signal, it might be received not as one, but as 0.9. So let's say you are the amplifier station. You receive the first signal and you get this 0.9. You might assume in good faith that I actually wanted to send one and this small difference is due to noise. So instead of just receiving 0.9 and amplifying it further, you actually interpret it as one and then you amplify that. And this is called regenerative repetition. This means that as long as there are sufficiently short distances between amplifiers, you can send your message to any distance. And this kind of technique is still common in all systems even today. We have much better wires. We have optical wires, optical fiber. We have wireless systems. We have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and satellite communication. But noise is ever-present, even in the most advanced communications. And it seems like nature always tries to mess up information. Whatever we try, whatever novel ideas we come up with, nature always tries to corrupt our messages. And we always fight against it to preserve and 
to grow information and we have to spend some energy to do it. It's never free. And this is an important observation. This isn't obvious either. Why does universe want to do it? Why wouldn't universe allow us to have perfect transfer of information for any distance? By virtue of time passing, the universe is trying to corrupt any information stored in any form. This gives you a glimpse of why the question of information is more deep than just technology and communication. It goes right into the deep reality of the universe itself. So Shannon wants to know what is information. He wants to answer this difficult question. And he also wants to know if information, something that exists within the context of consciousness only, of conscious beings like humans and our technology and our tools, or is it something fundamental to the nature of reality? Is it something as deep as the light speed? Now, the light speed limits the rate of information also. Nothing in the universe can travel faster than light. Why? Why is there this limit? Maybe it's not about light. Maybe it's about information because, well, that's what it means. No information in the universe, no message in the universe can travel faster than this particular seemingly arbitrary number. To further explore the nature of information, let's consider this simple example. I'm telling you that my name is Jason and I live in Finland. Now, on the other side of the globe, another person says their name is Jason and they live in the United States. Which statement has more information? They seem to be the same, just different countries. It's hard to say anything, but I argue there's more information in my statement simply because there are fewer Jasons in Finland. It's not a common name. There are also fewer people in Finland. So when I say I'm Jason and I live in Finland, it would be easier to pinpoint me there are fewer probabilities my statement describes a rare event while jason in the united states is quite is quite a popular event there are so many jasons and the country is so big it would be harder to find the particular person from that description alone so if you are after this question how much information is in something then you might want to connect the answer to probability the rarer something the more information is in there so shannon went this way he wanted to find the fundamental mathematical way to count information. Because if we just ask how much information is in a five-letter word, there are different ways to answer that. You can say, well, it's five because it's five letters. Or you might say it's one, it's one word. Those are just interpretations. Shannon, as a mathematician, wanted something fundamental. He wanted to have a unit of measurement of information that is applicable to any sort of fact or any sort of object even, to any sort of event, not only words in human languages but any structured unit so he connects the amount of information to the probability of appearance of that information and probability is that number between zero and one and and he proceeds to think about information as this number one divided by the probability of appearance of that information and that gets you to really big numbers and he proposes to use a logarithm of one over that probability. He also suggests to use the word bits. It's funny because uh, bit is a common word today, but at that time it was somewhat new idea. And he says in the paper that his colleague J.W. Tucky proposes this word and we're just going to use it. So this word is still new in the 40s. And bit simply means binary digit. Okay, probability, but how do you count that? Let's come back to that example of five-letter word. How much information is there in a five-letter word? How do you count probability? How probable is that word? 
again, there are many levels on which to interpret this. You can think of probabilities of this word appearing in the English language. There are words that are more common and less common. You can also think in a smaller context. In this particular communication, in this text or in this conversation, how probable is that word will tell you how much information is in there. But for English words, the lowest context possible is the alphabet. So let's think about how probable this combination of letters in the context of the English alphabet. Shannon proposes to tackle this with another question. What is the minimum number of yes and no questions you have to ask to guess that word? You might just start to guess this five-letter word. You would say, well, yes, no question. All right. Is this word handy? Yes or no? No. Okay. Is this word count? Yes or no? No, that would take a long time. This won't work because we need the minimum number of yes-no questions. We need the smallest amount possible. So that approach doesn't suit us. We might think in terms of letters and say, well, is the first letter A? No. Is the first letter B? No. Again, this would take a long time. It's still better because there are only 26 letters in the alphabet. So at most, we'll have 26 questions per letter and 26 times 5 that's the amount of information, I guess. But as any first-year computer science major will tell you, there are better ways to find things in a sorted collection. If you have a collection that's sorted and you're trying to pinpoint something in there, binary search is the most efficient way. And simply means, instead of asking, is the first letter A, I'm going to ask, is the first letter in the first half of the English alphabet? And if I get the answer yes, then I can completely disregard the second half of the alphabet. I know it's none of those letters. So just by asking a single no question, a single binary question, I divide my search space in half. And this is a great strategy because I can just keep doing it, dividing my search space into halves and always narrowing down my space to get to the result. I need at most five questions to get to one particular letter. So on average, I would need 4.7 questions. And for five letters, that means 4.7 times 5, 23.5. And that's the amount of information. That's the minimum amount of yes-no questions. So this is how much information is stored in a five-letter English word. Because of its connection to this binary process, the word bit is being used, it's a binary digit, and the amount of information is being represented by the logarithm of one over probability of appearance of that information. And log is base two, the most popular thing in computer science. Computer scientists love log. It gives you things to compute that are easier. They also are deeply connected to the binary nature of everything. And by the way, this kind of thing is an example of a lossless reduction. You have this huge number, 1 over probability, 1 over some small number, and you want to represent it in a smaller form. And you can represent it as a log, which would be just a simple small number. But in it, if you know the context, if you know the process of doing this log, you can reverse it and get to the original number. With this yes-no approach, we can count information not only in simple traditional pieces like words, but in events where you know there are different probable outcomes, but only one is present. So you might ask how much information is in a six-sided die toss. So you just toss a die and you get the answer and you want to know how much information is in this event. And if it's a fair die, then there are six different outcomes and the minimum number of yes-no questions is three. By just asking three questions, again, using this binary search approach, is number between one and three. And yes and no, that would have your search space. And then two more questions at most, and you get to the answer. This tells you that there is three 
bits of information in a six-sided die toss. And now we can compare seemingly uncomparable things. There's more information in a five-letter word than there is in a six-sided die toss. There's actually more information in a single letter than in a six-sided die toss, simply because choosing one out of 26 gives you a lower probability of guessing it than choosing one out of six. Following this pattern, a coin flip would have even fewer bits of information because it's just choosing one of two. Shannon presents this thought experiment to further describe this idea. Imagine you're given a string of seemingly random letters. You look at that string and it looks like A, 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 B, A, A, C, C, A, A, B, B, etc. So you see there are only three letters a b and c this is somewhat random but there is some pattern there seem to be a few rules here first of all you see that a's are more common there are more a's than anything you also see that b's and c's never go together and you might notice some other rules it's not too clear you're not sure you don't have any other information you just look at this string but you might deduce something and your task is to make a similar string to make a string that is different but is kind of similar so that if you present both strings to someone else they would say yeah they are similar they come from the same place probably so if you just start with random a's and b's and c's that will not share the pattern and the longer the strings the more obvious it will be that they are not alike so instead of just coming up with a string your task is now to come up with a machine or a description of the process of creating strings like that so you need to create some sort of algorithm that produces strings that are similar to the original one and you might start with probabilities that's a good start you just count the numbers of a's and b's and c's in the original string and you come up with numbers that a is 70 percent b is 25 5% and C is maybe 5%. If you just generate new letters based on that probability, then your patterns will look somewhat similar but still distinguishable. You need not only probability but probability with context. To solve this, Shannon uses Markov chains. And Markov chains are these simple models of generating basically strings where the next letter is random but it has some probability and that probability depends on the context. It depends on the previous letter. So every time you have to generate the next letter, you have a choice and you just use some random number generator to make that choice. But the choices are not even. So if you are in, let's say the first letter is always A, so you start with A and you have to make up the next letter. Now the next letter will most probably be A and with a smaller probability that would be B or C. This means if you start with A, you generate somewhat long patterns of A's. It's difficult to get out of the A state. But once you get out, then there are other probabilities. So if you are suddenly in B, which had lower probability, but it's still possible to get from A to B, then from B to C, there's zero probability. So there is never B followed by a C, etc. So if you guess those patterns well enough and you encode them in your Markov chains or in any sort of algorithm that generates strings like that, then your machine will generate strings that are indistinguishable from the first one in terms of how they look like. You can also apply this to English and maybe make an algorithm 
that creates English-looking text. And again, you might start with just random English letters that will produce, well, something that doesn't look English at all, but at least it uses correct letters. Then you take into account patterns. Not any letter is random in any word. There are letters that usually go together. There are letters that never go together. So if you take those probabilities and patterns into account, then your machine might generate words that kind of look Englishy, and then you get to the point where your machine generates only valid words, words that are actually in English language, and you try to make a text, and well, your sentences don't make sense, the words, they don't have any connection between each other, keep going, and at some point you generate sentences that are at least structurally correct. The words match each other, they match gender and tense, but they don't make any sense. And if you keep going, maybe at some point you'll get to the point where you actually generate text that makes sense. And it wasn't any conscious being coming up with that text. It was just a process that takes into account the nature of information in the context of English language. By doing all this, Shannon sees the deep connection between information and this abstract machine that generates information. And they seem to be equivalent. They seem to be looking at the same lower level level fundamental thing from different perspectives. You can look at information as something that is already present, or you can look at information as something that produces it. So Shannon connects this idea of probability with the idea of entropy. And entropy as a term already exists in physics by the time, and it's most commonly known as the amount of disorder. It's not the most correct way to think about entropy because entropy describes probabilities, not just disorder. Boltzmann started a new field of statistical mechanics, and statistical gives you a hint of why is this about probabilities, first and foremost. In this classical example of a room filled with air molecules, to think about entropy, we might look at different possible configurations. And if you just ask a computer, simulate me a room with a random configuration of air molecules in the room, most probably you will get a room just filled with molecules. Yes, they are in some configuration, but they seem to just be evenly distributed. And if you repeat it, if you ask for another configuration, it will give you another configuration, but for you, it will be indistinguishable, just another random, evenly distributed configuration. It's also possible that if you keep asking long enough, at some point the computer will present you a room where all air molecules are in one half of the room, and the other half is vacuum. That's still random. It's still just another configuration of molecules that's possible. But even in this super abstract example, you have an intuition that even though this is possible, this is less probable than any of those even distributions. And this is how you think about entropy. High entropy is the state of the system where it's in one of those configurations that is more probable. In the big picture, all of configurations where the air is distributed evenly are somewhat equivalent they just the same. They, they're a bit different, but for practical purposes, they are the same. And there are so many different configurations like that. They are most probable simply because of their number. The probability of having all the air molecules on one side of the room is lower just because there are fewer possible combinations that lead to this. And this means low entropy. This is why for the most part, in most cases, low entropy means high order. This one side is kind of an ordered configuration, but that's just a consequence. The essence of entropy is just probability. And I guess this is why Shannon 
thought of entropy in terms of information as well, because it seemed to be almost the same thing, but instead of just any states of any systems, we're talking about configurations of things that represent information in some sort. Now, entropy and the connection between physical entropy and entropy in information is deep and it's a big topic and we might have to save it for another episode. I would also like to recommend a great book about this that describes it in not too much of a detail but in a kind of a fun format. It's called Why Information Grows by Cesar Hidalgo and it tries to answer this weird question. Now remember nature always tries to destroy information. However hard we try to preserve it, to transfer it, to grow it, by default nature tries to corrupt it. And this is the case for any sort of order, any sort of low entropy states. Boltzmann noticed that too. Universe has a tendency of averaging everything out. If we just leave an ordered thing in a room, like a cup of coffee, a hot cup of coffee in a cold room, at first the entropy of the system is low, because here we have a collection of of particular states of molecules and around them all molecules are different state and we have this nice ordered collection. But give it time and temperature just distributes evenly. The room becomes average and there are no more pockets of hot molecules. That's what universe does. Give it enough time, the planets and galaxies and people just disappear. At some point, the universe will become the same everywhere. Any two points will be indistinguishable because everything will be average. Now, if that's the case, where order first came from? We have billions of years of evolution of the universe and we still have lots of pockets of order. We have planets and beings and stars. And it turns out if you have a system that is out of equilibrium, order appears out of nowhere seemingly. Energy has a property of decreasing entropy, of creating order. But to preserve that order, we also need certain physical properties of matter, like matter being solid. Solids seem to store information in a much better and a long-term way than gases, for example. Now, remember, we counted number of bits of information in a five-letter English word, but... For practical purposes, there seem to be more information in there. Because, let's say, I tell you, today is a beautiful day. You didn't receive 50% of that information. I just cut 50%. But you still understood me. You got all the information from half of the letters. So it seems like English, for English speakers at least, is somewhat redundant. We can cut something and still be fine. Linguists might say that languages actually have a tendency of removing things and over time becoming simpler and simpler and English is in on its way as well it might lose articles and some tenses and we already lost some tenses so, well at least they're not used in everyday speech and in his paper Shannon tries to find out how much stuff can you remove from English so that it's still understandable and it seems like a lot it seems like English is about 50% redundant information in English can be minimized and it's tragic and ironic in the most tragic way that Claude Shannon had to spend his last years fighting Alzheimer's disease. After years of research, after so much energy put into trying to understand the nature of information and knowledge and communication, he had to fight this disease that attacks these very abilities of the human brain. 
Now, to end this episode, I would like to think a little bit about AI in the context of knowledge and information. Information in today's world seem to be layered and to include lots of lots of layers. On the high level, on the most high level, you can imagine information is just something that exists in our brains. Let's start with that idea. It's something not put into words yet. And if you want to transfer that information in some sort, I have an idea for this podcast and I want to send this to other people, send it to you. This information has to get transferred through multiple layers. It has to be transformed and maybe some noise will be added. Maybe something will be lost. So the next level from my thoughts is maybe a human language. I put these thoughts into English and they are still in my head, but they are a bit more physical, if you will. And then I have to encode them into something more real. Maybe I have to write them down or I have to record them. So I have to sit in front of this microphone and say things. So my vocal cords produce vibrations in the air and these vibrations somewhat correspond to the things that I wanted to say. It's a different format. I have a lot of things that were lost, but I'm trying really hard to fight the universe as it tries to destroy this information and it gets encoded into digital signal. It's being stored as a mp3 file. So already I have lost some of the frequencies because I had to compress this huge audio file into a smaller file so that it's suitable for internet communication. But then it gets transferred multiple more times through hardware and software, but those transformations are perfect. So the mp3 file that you get on your end is absolutely identical to a single bit to my mp3 file, even though it was transferred through multiple devices and vibrations on the wire and optical fiber and the satellite communications and all, and all that. It took a long time, relatively speaking, and it took a lot of transformations, but in the end, you have absolutely the same bits of information as I did in my file system. And it keeps this ideal format up until your sound card, because at some point you have to get a true physical layer. And until we have a direct computer to brain connection, we still rely on the physical outside, on the analog world to finally receive that information. It's sort of like the last mile problem. Everything is perfect until you have to cross this small barrier. And that's small barrier, again, tries to destroy information, tries to corrupt it. Your sound card has to give certain instructions to your speakers, vibrate air in a way kind of similar to my vocal cords did in the first place. So they, for your brain, they are sort of similar. So you get the same amount of knowledge. Your brain interprets it because your eardrums receive those vibrations of air and they vibrate and they vibrate in a similar way. And those vibrations finally create electrical signals that go into your brain and then through the magic of consciousness you somehow understand what I'm trying to say. Why does that make me think of AI? Well, artificial intelligences might communicate in the ways that are much more efficient. So first of all, why is suddenly AI so hot in I guess 2000s and still up to this point everything seemed to be machine learning, artificial intelligence and big data? The idea of AI is not new and computer scientists were trying to come up with ways to create artificial intelligences from the first years computers were invented from the 40s they were thinking about how do we make the universal ai in the 2000s it seemed to have 
another wave of adoption and everybody talking about it and it's actually not the first wave like that it, it happens every few decades in the 2000s it was more prominent simply because of three reasons i think first computers became powerful enough so that regular people can do it up until 2000s computers were getting faster two times faster every few months and that's an incredible growth the price of those computers went down as well. In the 2000s, you can basically have a supercomputer from the 90s. And the third reason is lots and lots of data. Many artificial intelligence systems need to feed on some information before they can be anything. So before you had to just get that information somehow, but today you have the internet, seemingly infinite source of all kinds of information, not just text, which you could have gotten from books and libraries before, but pictures appearing every second from all points of the planet, videos, sounds, etc. Alan Turing, a computer scientist who is one of the founding fathers of modern computer science, was thinking about AI in the 40s. Claude Shannon did think about it as well. And Claude Shannon actually came up with one of the first artificial intelligent systems, which is funny today, but at the time it was quite quite a novel idea. He came up with a mechanical device that could find its way through a maze. And it's a simple heuristic, but it's one of the first examples of a device that computes, but doesn't compute exactly what we told it to. It computes a new problem. It solves a problem that it never saw before. So for a long time, when computer scientists and programmers and engineers were thinking about AI, they had this, I guess you can call a naive approach, because their goal was to simulate a person. And they were trying to simulate a person through simulating different abilities of that person. And one of the abilities of a, of a person is memory. A person knows a lot, so it needs to somehow store information. But one might think that information in brains is stored in a nice structured form. There are facts and you can make a model for that kind of a database. So for AI to know things, we need a structured format to store those things. And AI also needs to understand and speak human languages. And how do people speak human languages? Well, I guess they have structured rules written down somewhere in the brain. For AI to speak English, it needs to have a complete model of English, of all the grammar rules and words and connections and definitions, etc. They were trying to basically build a person as if that person was a robot, because that's what was our best guess. That's how people work. Today, we understand that people don't work this way, that we don't store grammar rules when we speak English and we don't remember everything as a in a database it seemed to be more chaotic and organic and it's hard to explain how things work in our brains those approaches weren't too successful partly due to that limitation they were trying to be the systems that people can understand or people can imagine so up until the late 20th century artificial intelligences were successful in highly limited domains only like chess but no general-purpose artificial intelligences existed. They still don't exist, but it seems like we're slowly, slowly getting closer, at least in some of the areas that were really difficult before, like language processing. So the modern approach is more organic. It's less structured, and it doesn't try to simulate the perfect idea of a person anymore. So remember, in 2000. 
something, maybe 2005, there was a game of Jeopardy with a computer as one of the players. That computer was IBM's Watson, a supercomputer that crushed everybody in that game. So how did he do it? And I'm going to say he because it's, I guess it's like Dr. Watson from the Sherlock Holmes books. If computer scientists from the 60s were tasked to create a computer to play in Jeopardy, I guess they would try really hard to come up with this structured database of information so that the computer can first understand human language, have a complete model of that language so that each word can be interpreted in the correct form and grammar, and then try to get the essence of the question and then find the facts that correspond to that question in the vast bank of facts that should be stored also in some sort of structured format. But instead, Watson was a little bit different. It had a recording of all episodes of Jeopardy. Basically watched them all and it remembers every single second, every question, every answer, every reaction in the decades of that show. It tries to deduce answers to new questions from those questions, but not by creating a perfect model of every fact, but instead by trying to find patterns So it doesn't really understand those domains of knowledge. It doesn't really have a complete model of geography, history, etc. But it can produce correct answers most of the time. It's almost like, imagine a parrot who answers any question correctly. You ask it a mathematical equation, you ask it about history, you ask it about engineering. It says the correct thing. You know it's still a parrot. It's just this super parrot who somehow knows what sounds to make in most of the cases. There's no model in his head. The parrot doesn't know about physics or engineering or history. It just produces sounds that for us seem to be correct. Both a parrot like that and IBM's Watson would easily pass the Turing test. They would both trick us into thinking they are people. So you might say, well, that's cheating. That's not really intelligence, right? It's it's not how people work. We know things, we understand them, we don't just produce sounds in the correct way. But for practical purposes, does not matter? I mean, it's a big philosophical question on its own, but if we just put that aside and think about practical matters. Jeopardy, well, I guess it's cheating. I wouldn't feel like this is a fair play, but I don't care about Jeopardy that much. I care about medicine. If a robot like that saves lives without really understanding anything about human body or medicine or chemistry, but somehow producing correct actions better than doctors, is that cheating? Well, I don't care. So this makes me think that if we keep at it, if we keep this progress and artificial intelligences actually become more prominent in our lives and they control more and more things in our life. At some point, we will be forced to give up this control, not of decision-making, but of understanding. As long as we keep all our systems to be understandable by humans, as long as we have this requirement that every process around us must be something that we understand on a deep level, then for computers and robots and AIs, that's sort of a crutch. It doesn't help them. They don't need their processes to be understandable by humans. We see the big beginnings of this with things like neural networks. There are neural networks that can find faces in photos. And yes, we have built them. We have built the things that created the process of finding faces. But the particular process that that the thing that computer does in the instance of finding a face in the photo 
we already don't understand. That is something that is so unstructured and so organic. It goes way beyond the abilities of our brains to just understand. And we are okay with that. We don't understand how it happens exactly. We just provide building blocks and then the computer itself builds a really obscure, exotic structure. And this could happen with general communication as well. I had described you how my voice gets into your head and it gets through multiple transformations. Some of them are induced by humans only. Computers would need fewer layers because they wouldn't need to convert from abstract ideas into physical form, where most of the loss happens, I guess. My ideas, once they go into paper, I feel like so much is lost. I feel like I didn't say enough. And this is the worst transformation of all. So who knows, maybe by exploring the ways computers speak to each other, we will understand something more about information and maybe something more about ourselves.